All right. Thank you, Michael. Uh, life lessons learned. Don't trust Mark when he says it's almost over. Uh, uh, we, we love you, we love you, we love you, and uh, we love uh, you, Michael, and uh, the rest of you who are graduating. Uh, we're so proud of you. Uh, we are uh, continuing on. Actually, we're going to end today this little series that we started just uh, about four weeks ago on the soul. Uh, and we've been looking at the soul and what comes next. Do, do we have a soul? Does the soul continue to exist past the point of death? And the answers are yes and, and yes. And what does the Bible say about the soul? Well, it says a whole lot. Uh, do science and uh, near-death experiences and dying experiences and philosophy confirm what the Bible actually teaches concerning the soul? And the answer is absolutely. And if you've missed the series so far, you can go back and listen. But today we're going to wrap things up on a, a very, I don't know, difficult note. Because last Sunday night at, at the near-death experience class that we've been having, which, by the way, Dr. Walter Bradley, who's been helping with the class, he came through surgery successfully on uh, Tuesday, uh, removed his bladder, was stage 4 cancer, but they found no evidence that it had metastasized. There was no cancer in surrounding tissues, so praise God for that. In fact, I talked to Dr. Uh, uh, Walter Bradley just a few minutes ago, and he's hoping to be here tonight to help with the class. And uh, I told him, thank you for your lack of confidence in my leadership, but I digress. But he will be here uh, tonight. Hopefully, we'll see. He, he, he's driving back from uh, MD Anderson, and they'll see how it feels. Uh, but I digress. Anyways, we've been doing that near-death experience class. And last week, we heard a couple of testimonies that were sort of on the dark side, where people didn't go up, but they went down, you know. And, and it raises an interesting question. Those near-death experiences do confirm what the Bible teaches uh, concerning this very difficult doctrine of hell. And so we're going to talk about that today because it raises a very mature and grown-up question, which is how in the world can we teach, how in the world could Jesus teach that there's a God of unconditional love and simultaneously teach that there's such a place as hell? And just to be clear, we're not going to look at every single verse that points to the reality of hell, but we do know that Jesus warned people against hell more than any other figure in the Bible ever did. And this is the same Jesus who is the Lord of love, the Lord of life, the Lord of peace, the Lord of joy, the Lord who showed us that God is a God of incredible unconditional love. And yet at the same time, he teaches there is this place called hell and many people, a great many people will go there. And so the question is, well, what in the, how do we deal with this with Jesus? What is happening here? How can it both be true that there's a God of love and there's a place called hell? It's a very mature grown-up question, and we're going to deal with it in a very mature grown-up way. And here's how we're going to start. We're going to start by blowing apart this very common misconception, this very common unbiblical and non-serious-minded understanding of heaven that and hell that are basically at the root of this whole conundrum. Uh, because what's at the root of the misunderstanding, what's at the root of our inability to reconcile God of love in a place called hell is this very, frankly, childish and non-biblical view of heaven. Here's the non-biblical view. Here's the very common assumption that's so problematic. That is, anybody would love to spend eternity in heaven if they were only allowed entrance. Now, you may not have ever thought about this before, but that's wrong. The common assumption is absolutely, thoroughly wrong. 
Heaven is not a pleasure factory. Heaven is not Disney World on steroids in the clouds where the rides are better than you've ever experienced, but there are no lines. Heaven is not a pleasure factory. It's, it's something else. And as we dive into the very nature and the essence of heaven, you will see that the common assumption absolutely is wrong concerning heaven. So let's get into the essence of heaven. Let's get into it like this. At the heart of heaven, if you're just like cutting right to the chase, right to the heart of it, heaven is the with God revolving around God life. It is the life that, that is lived with God, and it's the life where it's revolving around God. And this kind of life goes on uninterrupted and unhindered for all eternity. If you read through the Bible, you see that the Bible is largely about the with God revolving around God life. It starts in the garden, and by the way, when you get to Revelation and it talks about the end, it's a return to the garden. In the beginning, God is with Adam and Eve, and he's walking with them in the cool of the garden. It's a picture of God with them, and all of the universe and the relationships revolve around God. And when that with God revolving around God life is broken, guess what happens next? There's the, there's the tabernacle, and there's the temple. And if you know anything about Jewish history, you, you recognize that the temple is at the center of Jewish life. And the important part of the temple that was so holy was the Holy of Holies, this perfect cube where God in all of his glory dwelled in the midst of his people, with his people, and all of the community revolved around God. Then when Jesus comes, he is the perfect, I mean, the perfect example of the with God revolving around God life. Everything that Jesus did was with the Father and for the Father. And so when, when Jesus starts preaching about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, he is casting a vision of what life is like when everybody fully and gladly yields to the authority of God as their king. And he gives us pictures in these parables of what it's like to live under the authority of God as king, where our hearts are with God. And when God is with us, and what would the world be like if everything revolved around God and God was the foundation of all and the covering over all, filling all with his very presence? The essence of heaven is the with God revolving around God life, unhindered, unstopped, unmitigated for all eternity. Heaven is essentially relational. And so it really should come as no surprise that when heaven is pictured in the Bible, it is pictured as a city because it's a picture of community, people who are living the with God revolving around God lives with other people who are living the with God revolving around God lives. So you go over to Revelation chapter 21, verse 3, and we read, now the dwelling of God is with people and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. John could not possibly be hitting us over the head any harder than he is here. This is the with God revolving around God life. And then we get these terms like eternal life that people throw around and they think they know what it means because it just means, oh, you know, continuing to live in a better place like Disney World or something like that. That's not how Jesus defined eternal life. Jesus gives us very clearly the understanding of eternal life when he's praying to the Father in John chapter 17. And he says this, he says, now this is eternal life. You want to know what eternal life is? Here it is. This is it. That they, that's us, followers, people, may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So here's eternal life. 
It's not the pleasure factory in the sky. This isn't Disney World in the clouds. Eternal life is knowing God the way he knows us and not just knowing about him but loving him and so that our every pore of our being is saturated by the, by the glory and the majesty and the love of God where we're returning to God what it is that he has given to us in terms of his, the overflow of his heart expressed in his son Jesus Christ. That is eternal life, the with God revolving around God life. And so we've got to be very careful as we're thinking about heaven to be thinking about heaven relationally. And that brings us to the next thing that we need to recognize. That is heaven doesn't contain God as much as God contains heaven. And here's what I mean. God is still the biggest thing going, all right? It's not like we should picture heaven as a place, like a country that has, I don't know, headquarters or a capital city where if you want to go see God, you can travel over there and you can see God because heaven contains God. That's not the biblical picture. Now, if you want to go see the president, you go to the White House. If you want to see the governor, you go to the state house. If you want to see Lester Holt, you go to the NBC studio in Rockefeller Center, and that's where you go. If you want to see Matthew McConaughey, look for him in his Lincoln Continental or maybe on the sideline of a UT football game. But if you want to, if you want to find God, you don't find him in heaven as if heaven's some country and you just go over there and he's just kind of sitting on his throne if you want to check him out or something like that. No. God isn't in heaven as much as heaven is contained within God. And so that's why you have other statements in the scripture like this, Revelation 21, 22. I did not see a temple in the city because, why? Why is there no temple? Because he's not contained in a temple. Why? Because the Lord of God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. What does that mean? That means God's everywhere. And not just kind of like in a distant, you know, I'm, I'm keeping an eye on you. The whole thing The whole of heaven is pictured in the book of Revelation as this perfect cube. 12,000 stadia by 12,000 stadia by 12,000 stadia. So what what difference does that make? The the Holy of Holies was a perfect cube. What, What you're getting with heaven is not God in a place somewhere in heaven. What you are doing is entering into the eternal Holy of Holies where you understand and you see and you experience the fullness of God in all of his glory, penetrating all of who you are, fulfilling everything, filling everything with his presence and glorious power. It's the with God revolving around God life with other people who are living life with God, whose lives are revolving around God together in community with one another. That's the essence of heaven. Now that we understand that, that's like at the heart of the deal. We'll get to some of the imagery later on with regards to hell, but that's the heart of what heaven is. Now, since we know that's what heaven is, there's something else that we need to be very clear about, and that is in heaven, there's no place you can go to get away from God. It's impossible to avoid God in heaven, but that's okay because everybody there doesn't want to avoid God. They're all fine with that. That's what they want. They want God's presence. Okay, are we we clear on that? You never avoid God. There's no place in heaven, not a single square inch where you can ever go where you can get away from God. He's there. Now, having said that, on the flip side, if you don't want to be around God, heaven is really not the kind of place that you would enjoy. If you don't get anything else this morning, you've got to understand this. If you don't want to be around God, if you don't want the with God revolving around God life, Heaven's just not going to be a, an enjoyable experience. I, I, I can't see who all's raising their hand out there, but I just want to know here, how many of you have ever sinned? Could you raise your hand? Okay, for those of you on, on, who are not here, everybody but my son raised his hand. 
Uh, I, I'm sorry, I couldn't see. Okay, there we go. He's got two hands up. Thank you very much. Woo! I thought I hadn't raised you right. Uh, yeah, we've sinned. And I'm not going to get into all the things, you know, was it, you know, sexual sin in your mind or with your body or did you steal or did, were you, you gossiping? I don't know. But whenever you did whatever you were doing that you knew you shouldn't be doing with whomever you were doing it with, did you want your mama there? Really? Did you want your mom around while you were doing that? No, you went to your room and you closed the door. Or you drove on the other side of town and you didn't Facebook that or anything like that. I mean, you didn't put that on social media because your mom, you don't want her there. She would ruin the fun, right? Well, in heaven, there's no place you can go for a quick sin. If you want, if you want to do what you want to do with whoever you want to do it with, however you want to do it, there's not a place you can run for, I don't know, you know, a second. There's not a single square inch to which you can retreat and just do whatever you want to do and, and have your jollies. You, you, no. If you want to be selfish, you're going to be rude. You want to be unkind. You want to not serve. You want to be puffed up. Whatever the case is, there's no place for you to go do that. Because God's not in heaven. Heaven is in God. Unhindered, uninterrupted life with God revolving around God. And so if you want to sin, if that's your thing, doing whatever you want to do with whomever you want to do it, however you want to do it, if that's your thing, heaven's probably not a place that you are going to enjoy. You're not going to like it. It's a little bit like if you're maybe a smoker and you go to a non-smoking restaurant, it's like, you know, it's really a bummer. Now, in South Texas, it used to be everything in, on South Padre Island was smoking. It was just, you know, it was kind of miserable for my wife in particular with the asthma and so we'd go and it's like, well, that's a drag. But you go to a non-smoking restaurant, if you're a non-smoker, woo, it's a breath of fresh air. There's just certain places that if you're right for it, you enjoy. And if you're wrong for it, you, you, you don't you don't enjoy. And I tell you what, if you were a Jew back in Jesus' day and you wanted to have a little season of sin, the last place in the world you wanted to go was to the Holy of Holies. Woo, I want to open that magazine. I want to talk about that person. I want to be selfish. I'm going to go to the Holy of Holies, and that's where I'm going to sin. Absolutely not. That's the last place in the world anybody would want to go. So why in the world would you think that I'm going to enjoy heaven so much, and I'll never, ever, ever be able to get away from God if right now you don't want to do life with God? I mean, that's that's kind of the, the, the major question here, isn't it? If you don't don't really want to do life with God, if you're not really interested in doing life with God, why in the world... Would you think heaven is the kind of place for you? And that brings us to a, a, another key thing that we have to grasp with regards to heaven. And before we talk about the alternative, what, it, what ought to be clear for you and for me is what we need is not just a way to be allowed inside of heaven. We need a way to become the kind of people for whom heaven would be the fitting and appropriate and right place for us. There's an old song, The Rock of Ages, that goes something like this, one of the lines. Be of sin the double cure, save from wrath, and make me pure. There's a double cure that's needed, and God's the ultimate epidemiologist. He knows exactly how to solve the problem. On the one hand, we've got to be saved from wrath. And he said, well, that just sounds terrible. Listen, if God's any kind of God, he absolutely, 100%, is going to stand radically opposed to things that destroy, like sin. We destroy each other. We destroy the world. God is opposed to, he, he loves you, but he's absolutely radically opposed to sin, as he should be. And because we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the judgment of God ought to rest upon us. But he doesn't want to destroy us. 
So that's why he sends Jesus, so that we would be saved from God's wrath. He so wants to save you and save me from his holy wrath that Jesus took the punishment that we deserved. He lived the life he should have lived, died the death that, that we should have died, and he did it in our place. He endured separation from God for a, for a time, so we would not have to be separated. He took what our sins deserve. So we're very grateful for having Jesus having come, saved us from God's holy wrath. We don't get what we deserve. He got what we deserve, so we would get what he deserved. We're glad of that. But there's another problem that needs to be solved, not just the results or the consequences of our disobedience or radical, you know, cosmic treason against God taking God's place. There's something else that needs to be done. We need to be healed, saved from, delivered from our desire to commit cosmic treason. We ought to be, we need to be changed, transformed on the inside, saved from this continuous desire to distrust God, to take our lives into our own hands as if we're God. It's not just the results of the sin that need to be saved and redeemed. We need to be saved from the desire to do wrong. And what the Bible teaches is that the desire in your heart, my heart being turned toward God, your heart being turned toward God, away from selfishness toward God, that doesn't happen by simply dying physically. What changes your heart, what changes my heart, is Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit that that he sends into our hearts that continually points to Jesus Christ, allowing us to be transformed into the kind of people for whom heaven is a fitting place. And so, again, let me just ask the question. If right now you say, I don't don't want to do life with God, I don't want to pray to God, I don't want to serve God, I don't want to seek God, I don't really want to know God, I don't want to consult God, I don't want to go in God's way, but I know that when I die, simply because I die, all of a sudden I'm going to want to be immersed in the God with God revolving around God life, with with God revolving around God people. Really? You think that's just going to automatically happen because you died? That's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, what the Bible teaches is the consequence for the wages of sin is death. Death is the judgment. That's not the healing factor. The healing factor is Jesus Christ in your life and the Holy Spirit who points to Jesus Christ in your life. Okay, so it's very important. I hope you're understanding this. This is very important to understand Heaven relationally, it's not just a place that you go and God's contained over there and it's just this giant, you know, theme park for adults or whoever you are. It's the with God revolving around God life and not everybody wants that, obviously. Now, having thought through heaven, we're in a position now to understand the alternative a little bit better. If heaven is essentially relational, then hell is essentially relational. If heaven is being in this full-on relationship with God through Jesus Christ, the, the, the glorious God and the one whom he sent, if that's the essence of eternal life, that's the essence of heaven, well, then on the flip side, hell would be separation from God. And that's exactly what the Bible teaches. Uh, there, there are people that will ask, and, and rightly, it's a good question. I don't dismiss the question, but there are people who are going to ask, Why would God ever send anybody to hell? And the answer that the Bible gives uniformly is really people choose hell. They don't necessarily know what they're choosing, but the the doors to to hell are not locked on God's side of the door. When people go to hell, it's because they have chosen against or away from God, and God allows people that choice. If you're looking for the text that kind of cuts to the heart of things, I think it would be found over in Romans chapter 1 and then 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1 as well. You go over to the book of Romans and 
And the Apostle Paul there is basically talking about people who've said no to God once and for all. They've just said, I'm done with you, God. Check this out. This is the worst-case scenario of the human soul. Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And then there's this phrase that Paul uses repeatedly with regards to God's response to people who said, no, God, I don't really want you in my life. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires, their sinful desires. And because of this, for this reason, God gave them over to shameful lusts. And then again, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, since they didn't want to acknowledge God in their lives, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. What's the phrase that keeps coming up? Did you notice? Gave them over. God let go. God gave them over. What the Bible teaches is it's entirely possible for a person to say, God, what I really want is for you to leave me alone. And God says, well, okay, I will. And the result of that persistent, subtle rejection of God is hell. God leaving them alone. And like I'd said a little bit earlier, the doors of hell are not locked on God's side of the door. Now, how bad is this when a person opts for the without God revolving around me life? How bad does that get? Well, it gets pretty bad because here's what you need to imagine. Imagine your life where God has withdrawn his care and his intention and his restraining power from your life. Just that's hell. Hell is at the end of the road that leads away from God. If hell's at the end of the road that leads away from God, and you already know right now, the less room you make for God, the worse your life gets. Just imagine that trajectory carried out to its conclusion. That's hell. Hell is hellish because God's not there. Here's how it's put in First Thessalonians or Second Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 9, which I think is really the key verse for get, getting us to the heart or the essence of the nature of hell. Paul talks about people who are shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. The less space we make for God, the worse things get. Carry that out to the trajectory, and that's hell. It's hellish, not because God has anything to do with it. It's hellish because God has nothing to do with it because this is what people have asked for, to be left alone. And being left alone by God is hell. Now, how bad is this? Is it really that bad? Well, the Bible gives us all of these depictions of what it is to be separated from God, to have, to have God say, okay, I'm letting go. I'm turning you over. The Bible, of course, gives us the very common image that people are familiar with, the lake of fire. Of course, fire, lake of fire, that communicates, you know, torment. Uh, it's very clear from the scripture. I don't want to read too many of these, but here's one, Revelation chapter 14, 11. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There's no rest day or night. Fire in the Old Testament was used to consume the sin sacrifices because whatever was offensive to God got burned up in the end. That's probably part of the imagery. And here, of course, uh, there's this, in Matthew chapter 25, there's this famous parable where Jesus talks about the separation of the goat, goats and the sheep and the, the king, the authority, says to the righteous, 
Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. And by contrast, he says to the unrighteous, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So here's a fire and there's a torment. And it lasts forever and ever and is created for the devil and his angels. And so that's a pretty negative, horrible depiction of what life is like when God has withdrawn his, the majesty of his power and the presence from a person's life because that's what they wanted. They didn't acknowledge God. But it's still a horrible picture. But there are other pictures. This isn't the only picture of hell. Jesus also talks about outer darkness uh, in uh, Matthew chapter 8, verse 12, 22, verse 13, 25, verse 30. He uses the same language, being cast into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why not just darkness? Why is it outer darkness? Because hell is beyond the boundaries of the, the light of God. It's, it's walled out. Now, just think about light. Light was the first thing that God gave creation. He said, you know, let there be light, and there was light. And, you know, light is truth. Light is life. Light is enlightenment. Imagine being in darkness. Some of you, you've been in a cave where you can't see your, your hand in front of your face. Can you imagine being in darkness for all of eternity? It's eternal. It's ongoing stumbling. It's loneliness. It's despair. It's a terrible, terrible image. Then there's the image of the garbage dump because there's a word that, that is translated commonly in the New Testament as hell. It's the word Gehenna, and it was literally the garbage dump outside the city walls of Jerusalem. And that's the place where things that had no meaning, that had no purpose, that, that were a, a total waste, that had no future, were put and incinerated. So all of these images communicate one essential truth, and that is when you have said no to God and God has let go of you and you have got what you've asked for, it's a horrible, miserable, terrible thing. It's worse than we typically could possibly imagine because all of these images, I don't, I don't know which ones are literal or if they're all figurative. One of the things that we are rather convinced of, I think most people who are serious interpreters of the Bible, is all of these images cannot be taken literally because they're mutually exclusive. If you have fire over here that produces light, over here you have darkness. Well, how is it dark and light at the same time? You don't have a contradiction if these are just metaphors. If I say you have the heart of a lion and the heart of a warrior, well, which one is it? Well, they're both true because they're both metaphors. There's just no problem. It could be one, it could be the other, but they're not all literal images. But here's what I'm getting at. The multiple images being beaten with many blows, all of these things, they point to a, a common reality, and that is none of these depictions in and of themselves are sufficient to help us to really understand just how miserable and terrible and horrific hell actually is. Now, that's terrible, but before anybody says, well, that's just a bunch of, you know, liberal mumbo-jumbo, well, there you go, Ernest being, you know, a philosopher and all the rest. Listen, throughout history, Martin Luther, father of the Protestant Reformation, John Calvin gave us Calvinism, reformed thought, okay? J.I. Packer, very well respected. Billy Graham, who spent years and years trying to save people from hell, they all agreed that these images of eternal fire and outer darkness and being beaten with many blows, these and other images are best understood metaphorically. And that is to say, if we say heaven is beyond uh, our ability to take in because it's so wonderful, what the Bible is simultaneously on the other side of things communicating is that hell is so bad that it's pretty well impossible to take in. Look, 
when, when we say that heaven is this perfect cube, 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles, just think about a city 1,500 miles high. It's just an odd image. Does anybody feel pressed to take it literally? Well, some people will, and that's okay if you do. But nobody feels like, oh, you know, you're not taking the Bible seriously if you don't believe all of the descriptions are literal. Well, on the flip side of things, the same thing is true with regards to hell. Nobody really thinks when Jesus says, be careful or you're going to get cast into Gehenna, nobody thinks that, well, people spend all eternity in the garbage dump outside of the city of Jerusalem. Nobody thinks that. Now, some of you, if you've been paying attention, you're going, okay, I think I'm with you, Ernest. I think I understand where you're going here. What you're telling me is hell is super-duper bad. It's actually worse than the literal descriptions. It's actually worse than I thought it was. That, is that what you're saying, Ernest? It's like, yes. Listen, we've been listening to some of the testimonies for the near-death experiences with regards to heaven, and people who come back and they tell these stories, it's like, man, language escapes me. I'm just barely giving you a grasp of this. And, And then the Apostle Paul, actually, he puts it like this when he's talking about heaven. He says, what what no eye has seen, uh, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. The Apostle Paul is, is basically saying for the saved, you, you can't even take in, you can't even imagine what's coming next. That's a pretty, pretty strong indication that the images that are given to us in the Scriptures are just you know, powerful images that point to something that we can barely even begin to comprehend. Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul, when he has this vision of the, the, you know, the third heaven, says, I just saw inexpressible things. I'm not permitted to express them. Even if I could express them, I couldn't express them. It's just so wonderful. Well, on the flip side of that, hell is so bad that these literal descriptions are what people typically take as literal descriptions. They're only descriptions that are beginning to get at why hell is so bad. Now, some of you are going, okay, well, that wasn't the direction I was thinking you're going to take. Ernest, I thought, you know, if you're going to reconcile the love of God with the, you know, the existence of hell, you would just say, oh, well, hell's not so bad. Or it's only temporal or something like that. No, no, it's really bad. And so some of you still have the question, well, no, wait a second. Well, then how do you reconcile this? If hell is really that bad and God is a God of incredible love, how in the world could God allow anybody to go to hell? Here we get back to the understanding of everything in terms of relationship. If heaven is where God is, the with God revolving around God life, hell is separation from God at the end of the road that leads away from God, then you recognize that hell is so bad, not because God is there, but because God isn't, but because God has nothing to do with that place. Or put it a little bit differently. While hell is a place of torment, it is not a torture chamber. Hell is hellish, not because God's there dumping extra wood on the fire. That's so medieval and not biblical. Hell is hellish, not because God's there throwing extra garbage and flies on there or because he's encouraging the demons to whip people and beat them with many blows or because, you know, he's there keeping the little worm alive, whatever that worm in hell actually means. I don't know. But that's not why hell isn't hellish because it's a torture chamber. But it is a place of torment. Because people have chosen to reject the very source of life and peace and joy. Now, if you're like me, you might be thinking, but Ernest, I don't look. I mean, okay, I'm with you. Hell is hell because people said, no, it's the place that's in the end of road that leads away from God. It's where people have chosen to be shut out from the presence of the Lord and the majesty of his power. Okay, okay, okay. But... 
really, why does hell have to be so hellish? There's a question beneath the question that, that people ask, and the question is, why can't somebody just die in their sins, separated from God, unrepentant and unforgiven, and still know incredible peace and joy and, and life and happiness? And the answer to that question is because such a reality doesn't exist. If a fish is made for water and then the fish rejects water, how's the fish going to be happy? You can't not be who you are. You can't not be who God has created you to be or put a little bit differently. You and I were created for intimate relationship with God. We need and need desperately, like the air we breathe, we need the unconditional love of God. How in the world could God possibly give us joy and peace and happiness and contentment if we're separated from the very source of joy and happiness and peace and contentment. Since God created us for intimacy with him, God cannot make people happy, joyful, peaceful, and contented while they're still separated from God. You reject the source of your joy, you reject the source of life, and then at the same time you want life. It just doesn't work that way. Now, of course... If heaven were just this pleasure factory, if heaven were just, if it was just like Disney World in the clouds where the rides are amazing and there are no lines, then God would be kind of a jerk for keeping people out, frankly, because, well, you didn't do what I told you to do. You don't get in. God's not that petty. But heaven is not a pleasure factory. It's not Disney World in the clouds. Heaven is the with God revolving around God life. And what the Bible teaches is you can receive that life, but you have to say yes to God. I love this story that Bill Hybels tells. It's a great illustration. I heard it years ago. He said whenever he starts talking about hell with people, they'll bring up their Aunt Edna. And it's the Aunt Edna objection. It goes something like this. Well, you're telling me that my Aunt Edna is going to fry forever in heaven. My, hell, my, my Aunt Edna is a wonderful person. She's a sweet lady, wouldn't hurt a fly. She bakes cookies for people. And even though she bakes cookies for people, when the Girl Scouts come by, she buys their cookies, even though her cookies are better than their cookies. And my Aunt Edna pays her taxes. She's a hard worker. She's a matriarch of the family. And she always brings in stray cats and stray dogs, and she loves children. And you're just telling me, because my Aunt Edna was never into the church thing, and she wasn't, you know, my Aunt Edna, she just never did the church thing or the Bible thing or the Jesus thing or the God thing. She just, that wasn't her thing. But you're telling me that my sweet, sweet Aunt Edna, because she didn't sign on the bottom line or pray the little prayer, that she's going to fry forever in hell. I just don't buy that because I believe in a God of love and a God of peace and a God of joy and a God of grace. He would never send my Aunt Edna to hell. Now, when the person's saying this, they fail to realize that Jesus, who revealed this God of grace and unconditional love, also warned people against hell, but that's another story. The way that Bill Hybels would respond would be, okay, let's, let's talk about your Aunt Edna for a second. Here's what happened in Aunt Edna's life. When she was a kid, she went to church, you know, a little bit. She had a neighbor or friend or grandparent. She was there for Christmas or Easter. She would hear something on the radio on occasion or listen to a Billy Graham crusade on TV. And in those moments, God spoke to her through the word and said, I want a relationship with you. I want you to be my child. You can know me. I want you to know me. You can seek me. If you seek me, you'll find me. 
And Aunt Edna made a little choice when she was younger, and it wasn't a big overt choice maybe. It wasn't even a conscious decision, but she made a decision nonetheless. I will not use my mind and my power my energy to pursue God. I won't move in that direction. I will devote my life and energy to other things. And then she would go outside, and she would smell the freshly cut grass or the roses, and she would see the trees, and she would see the sky and the ocean and the mountains and at night she would behold the stars in the sky and the moon above and and god would speak to her through the voice of creation i made all this i made you give me thanks acknowledge me and edna made a little choice no i i won't acknowledge you i will not give thanks i will not worship i'll be the captain of my own ship thank you very much And then there would be occasions when Edna would do things that were wrong because we all do things that are wrong. She's no more perfect than I am or you are, any of us. And when she did, she would feel convicted. There would be a tinge of conscience. And God would speak to her through the law that was written on her heart. You've done wrong. Your life is not accountable just to you. There is something else to which you are accountable, and that would be me. And, And you know you've done wrong, and you know you need to repent. You know you need to confess your sin. You can turn to me. I'll forgive you. And Edna just made a little choice. I'll rewrite the rules. I'm going to do what I want to do. However, I want to do it with whomever I want to do it. I will remain the master of my own fate. And then as Edna got older, she had friends that had health issues. And she would go to services. They'd be at the church. And they would be in the funeral home. And and almost always she heard about God and Jesus and heaven. And in those moments, God would speak to her and say, Edna, I've planted eternity in your heart. You know that there is a finality coming for you. You know that if you're going to make it right to the other side, you need to know the God of life who was here before the world was created and the God who was here after the world was created. And you've heard the gospel. Turn to me. Trust me. You can say yes. And Edna made a little choice. Maybe it wasn't terribly conscious, but she made a choice. No, I will not bend a knee. I will not confess. I will not repent. I will not say yes to you. Over the years, Edna made choices. Not just one, not just two. Thousands and thousands of times she said no to God. I will not serve you, I will not pursue you, I will not get to know you, I will not worship you, I will not invite you into my life, I will not follow you, I will go my own way, I will atone for my own sins, I will determine my own path. Thousands of times throughout the years, she hardened her heart and turned her heart and life away from God. Now, I'm sure your Aunt Edna is a really sweet lady, a wonderful person, and who doesn't like people who love cats and dogs and children? But in many ways along the way, Edna told God, what I really, really want from you is to leave me alone. And being left alone is hell. It's just people don't often recognize what it is that they're asking for. I was visiting with with someone the other day, and 
she was just telling me a little about her story about her brother who had gotten onto drugs and and died because of the drug addiction. It was a choice that he made. He didn't want nobody wanted for him what happened. But you move in that that trajectory, and at the end of the road of those choices are consequences. And when a person chooses to reject the source of hope and the source of love and the source of life and the source of peace and the source of joy and the source of happiness, how could God make that person happy if if God himself has been rejected, if he's the source? So the... The question that is beneath the question of how could a loving God send anyone to hell, the question beneath the question is, well, why can't someone die unrepentant of their sin, die in their sins, unrepentant, unbelieving, rejected God, and just spend all eternity in happiness because such a reality doesn't exist because the way you were designed and the way I was designed was for intimacy with God, but God will allow us to say no. And it breaks our hearts when we see people that we love make decisions that we know are leading them in the wrong direction. But just because we don't like where it's taking them doesn't mean that that destination or where it's taking them isn't real. And if you're here today and you're watching and you're just thinking, okay, Ernest, I kind of get it. Fine, whatever. I still hate the idea of hell. I just hate it. What a horrible, horrible thing. Well, if you hate hell, anybody here hate hell? Can we just, anybody, I hate hell, okay? If you're out there, you hate hell. Guess what? Jesus hates it more. But you're like, but this whole thing is the whole idea of being separated from God for all eternity. That just kills me. Well, it killed Jesus. If you hate the idea of hell or the reality of hell, well, guess what? Jesus is the Savior and Lord for you. But you have to say yes. The with God, revolving around God, life can be yours, but you have to receive God. And because of what Jesus Christ did, you can receive him. The Bible is just really super plain on this. John chapter 1, verse 12 explains to us that as many as received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. It is a sad thing to God. It breaks God's heart that anybody would ever choose to say no to him. But we do. And the more we say no and the more we say no, the harder our hearts become and the harder our hearts become until finally we're on the wrong side of the door. But God didn't lock us in. The door to hell is locked on the inside of the door. And so if you have rejected God, but you're still expecting a theme park on the other side of eternity, I just want to say, grow up, think maturely. That's not what the Bible teaches. That is a very childish view of heaven. And it is not supported by scripture. And it's not supported by what you know to be true. If you don't want anything to do with God now, you probably won't won't want anything to do with God unhindered for all eternity. So the time is coming for a turn and the longer you put a turn off the harder and harder and harder it is to do so i am pleading with you for heaven's sake and for the sake of jesus christ who hates the idea of hell more than you ever could receive receive him
Let's bow for a word of prayer. Dearly Father, I don't know who all is watching. I don't know who all this is spoken to. But Lord, we, we know you're a Lord of love. You don't hate anybody. You, you don't want anyone separated from you. In fact, you wanted everyone so badly that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, who endured separation from you so we wouldn't have to. But there's reality, not fantasy. And the reality is we can say no to you and eventually you will relent because we know you don't force yourself down anybody's throat. Love doesn't do that. Forced love is not love at all. It's something else. It's something horrible. But you love us and you love us and you pursue and you pursue. But when we say no and we say no and we say no and we say no, eventually you take the no. Because you're not a stalker. You're the lover of our souls. And so, Father, I just I pray that if any are, any are listening, any are hearing this, they, they would finally relent and say, no, God, I want you in my life. I want to stop saying no to you. So if anybody here is ready to, to just receive Christ, you just have to receive and believe. Just pray this prayer right where you are. God, I know that I've sinned. I know I've done wrong. I, I know that. And I also know, know I need saving. And I know Jesus Christ came and he lived the life I should have lived and died the death I should have died. And I received Jesus and what he's done for me into my life. God, thank you for making yourself available to me. I have done you wrong and you didn't deserve it. But you still want a relationship with me. Thank you, God, for coming into my life through Jesus Christ. And Lord, I know that my desires are not what they need to be, but I trust you'll change those. But God, I just want to say now, thank you for saving me. Thank you for making yourself available. Thank you for coming into my life. In Jesus' name, amen.